0: If you've got a copy of God's Word, I'd invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4, we'll begin reading in verse 14, and I'll read through verse 10 of chapter 5. I don't know if the shorter catechism questions just happen to be providentially the next two that you guys were dealing with, but they certainly fit in well with tonight's message, and so I think it's apropos in the Lord's providence that He has put this message on my heart at the same time that it's come up here to talk about uh, Christ's humiliation and exaltation in the shorter catechism as well. Hebrews chapter 4 and 5 may not, uh, may not be the typical Advent passage either. We looked at Zephaniah chapter 3 this morning. That one, no doubt, is a little more atypical. Hebrews chapter 4 and 5 fit better with the theme of Advent because they focus on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So we'll look at what the Apostle has to tell us here Beginning in verse 14 of chapter 4, let me read, and then we'll open with a word of prayer. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh... Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. Thus far, God's holy, inerrant word, may he add his blessing to it. Let's look to him together in prayer. Our Father and our God, we come before you as your people. This is your word. We are your children. We are the sheep of your pasture, we belong to you, and so, Father, we come asking that you would draw near, that you would rend the heavens, that you would come down and visit us, your people, that you would take your word and that you would write its truths upon our hearts and minds, and that you, Father, would bind up the hurts and the doubts and the fears and the anxieties, that you, Father, would take your word and apply it as medicine to our souls, that we might hear the message of the Apostle. And be encouraged and strengthened to go on for another week, Father, having heard from you, having been ministered to by you. And so, Father, we come in advance thanking you for all that you will do in and through your word, even this very evening. Bless us and keep us, we pray, for we look to you expectantly, for it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, I wonder... Even here at Christ Covenant Church, even here in the evening service, no doubt, if there are any who are struggling in the Christian faith. I wonder if there are any who feel perhaps a little cold-hearted toward the Lord, maybe a little fearful. Maybe there was an opportunity even this last week for you to share the gospel with someone. Maybe it was a neighbor. Maybe it was a classmate. Maybe it was someone that you work with. Maybe gathered around the water cooler or the coffee pot or whatever it may be or just eating lunch in the cafeteria. You had an opportunity to talk about Jesus and you were afraid. You failed to give testimony to the Lord. Maybe. Maybe it's been a hard week, a hard month, a hard year, and God's providence has seemed to be difficult. Maybe you don't understand. Maybe the doctor has said it's cancer in your life. Maybe it's a family member's life. Maybe you've been struggling with something else. Maybe it's job loss. I don't know where you are, but my guess is That many of you at least, if not all of you, are struggling in some way, shape, or form. All of us, you know, are called to be strugglers. I love the word, the the name, um, that the Lord gives to His people. Isn't it fascinating that when He wrestles with Jacob and puts Jacob's hip out of place and changes Jacob's name, He gives him the name Israel. I've always wondered why He chose Israel. Why did the Lord not choose victorious ones in Christ? Why didn't He choose those who have no problems? He could have chosen any name to give to His people, both Old Testament and New, because those of us who believe in Christ, we are children of Abraham. We are the new Israel of God. The name Israel, if you know anything at all about the Old Testament, more than likely means something like, given the context especially in which it was given He who strives or struggles with God. Isn't that fascinating? Of all of the names God chose or could have chosen to give to His people, both Old and New Testament, He chose strugglers. What that means is God was telling us, He was telling His people, He's been telling us all along that the Christian life, the life lived in union and communion with Him is going to be a life of struggle. We're going to struggle with the Lord, if you will, in his providence when things happen in our lives that are not what we would choose for ourselves. We're going to struggle with the circumstances of our lives and why God would allow certain things to happen. We're going to struggle against sin. That's going to be the life of the Christian. From the time we come to faith in Christ, you and I are going to be defined by struggle. Struggle with the things of the world. Struggle against the world. Struggle within ourselves. The Romans 7 struggle that Paul talks about. Doing what we do not want to do and not doing those things that we want to do. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God. In Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the struggle of the Christian life, and that, I think, if I know anything at all about myself, I have to think, you guys, many of you, are there too. So much of the Christian life is one of struggle. And given that reality, I think this passage has a lot to say to us. Not only at this time of year, the Advent time, when we think on the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, but, but given especially what this passage is focusing in on about Christ. As I was thinking through Hebrews chapter 4 and 5, a, a quotation from Samuel Rutherford came to mind. If you don't know the name Samuel Rutherford, he was a 17th century Scottish pastor. He was one of the members of the Westminster Assembly one of the framers of the Westminster Confession, shorter and larger catechisms. He was the Scot who stayed perhaps the longest of all of the Scots uh, at the Westminster Assembly. Samuel Rutherford at one point said this in one of his letters. He said, Now would to God that all cold-blooded, faint-hearted soldiers of Christ would look again to Jesus and to his love and when they look i would have them to look again and again and fill themselves with beholding of Christ's beauty one of the things i love about hebrews is it gives us jesus again and again and again You cannot open the book of Hebrews, you cannot start in chapter 1 without getting Jesus and without getting the message that Jesus is better. He's better than Moses, he's better than the angels, he's better than Moses, he's better than Joshua, he's better than Aaron, he's better, he's better than health, he's better than wealth, he's better than all the things in life that we face. You and I need to hear that message. We need to hear it if we're cold-blooded, faint-hearted, if we're worn down and worn out, we need to be reminded that Jesus loves us, that the God of the universe is for us because Jesus came in his first incarnation and he gave himself for us for our sins and for our salvation. But even if we're not feeling worn down and worn out, maybe this has been a banner week for you. Maybe it's been a banner year for you, and you are on a mountaintop high, even this very evening. Well, if that's where you are, you still need the message of Hebrews to see Jesus and to see nothing but Jesus, if you will. It was Tim Keller, who said so appropriately that the gospel is not the ABCs of the faith. It's the A to Z of the faith. You see, what you and I need on the first day of becoming a Christian, or even when we're not a Christian, the first day of becoming a Christian after we are a Christian, and the very last day before we go to be with Jesus, is to see Jesus. To be reminded of all that He has done for us, for our sins and our salvation. Because Satan likes to perch himself on our shoulders. To attack and to accuse. He is the great enemy. He is the great accuser, and he loves to accuse you and me. How can you call yourself a Christian and think that thought? How can you call yourself a Christian and do that deed? How can you call yourself a Christian and say what you just said? How can you lose your temper like that with your loved ones and your family members? How can you be addicted to that? Or to this, Satan loves to attack, and the message that you and I need to hear is that God is for us in Christ Jesus. We need to see Jesus in all of his glory, and all of his beauty, and we need to see him again and again and again and again. So wherever you are this evening, that's the message here that the apostle has for us in Hebrews chapter 4 and 5, and that's the message that you and I most need to hear We need to see Jesus, and we need to see him over and over and over and over and over again. Three things the apostle wants us to see here in Hebrews chapter 4 and 5. First, that Jesus is the Savior we want. Jesus is the Savior we want. Look with me, if you have your Bibles open, at what he has to say down in Verse 7 of chapter 5. Notice there he says very casually, I almost fell off the back here. I fell off the sides in the second service this morning. I almost fell off the back. That would have been a little bit worse. Um, Neil and I were laughing uh, after the. someone in the congregation came up to Neil and Catherine when we were talking after the second service and asked if it was true that Neil had fallen off the pulpit the way I did this morning at First Pres in Columbia. And he said, yeah, I did it like four times. So I guess I'm in good He actually fell off the backside as well, I think. Um, but thankfully, I caught myself there. I'll try not to take a, too much of a step backwards. Um, uh, Jesus is the Savior we want. Look down in verse 7 at chapter five, of chapter 5. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications were told. And there, all I want you to see is that Jesus really became like us. In the days of his flesh, he's called the Son of God in verse 14. Of chapter 5. And the whole point of what he says in uh, in the middle of chapter 5 there where he cites from the Psalms, he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus, the son of God, the one who's equal with God, equal in power and glory, the one who did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to and maintained at all costs, he emptied himself, he became like us, he added to himself our human nature, thereby emptying himself. In the days of his flesh, we're told. You see, Jesus became like us. He became like us. Verse 8, we're told, although he was son, he learned obedience. He learned obedience, not because he was disobedient and needed to learn obedience, but he learned experientially. He learned by way of experiencing. He experienced. That's the whole point here, isn't it? He became like us. He experienced what you and I experienced. He experienced life. Life this side of the fall. He experienced what you and I go through. Verse 8 continues. He learned obedience how? Through what he suffered. He became like us. He experienced life he suffered he endured pain he endured loss he endured hardship but more than that look back at chapter 4 verse 15 he was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin so we're told in verse 14 we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When the Apostle says he was tempted in every respect, I don't think that means he was tempted with every possible temptation that could ever befall mankind. I don't think he was and, that, and I think that's not necessary. It's not necessary that Jesus, in order to understand us, be tempted in exactly the same ways that each one of us is tempted. If we took all of the ways that each one of us has ever been tempted or perhaps ever will be tempted, and we put them all together in one boat, in one basket, and we looked at that as one whole, it's not necessary in order for Jesus to understand who we are. In order for him to get us, it's not necessary that he experience every single temptation known to mankind. The point here is not that he experienced every temptation. When he says he was tempted in every way, as we are, the point is that Jesus experienced full temptation. The temptation that Jesus experienced wasn't a halfway temptation, it wasn't temptation light. Jesus experienced the full scope, the full range of temptation. He was tempted in every way that you can be tempted in terms of the scope and the weight and the extent of temptation. Jesus knew temptation, really and truly. You see the whole point of what this says. He became like us. He experienced life this side of the fall. He knew what it was to suffer and to hurt and to grieve, and to mourn loss. He knew what it was to weep, to lose loved ones, and eventually to be tortured, to be abused, to be mocked, spat upon. Jesus knew all of those things, and he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. You see the whole point the Apostle is trying to tell us. Jesus is the Savior we want. He's the Savior who understands us. He's the Savior who gets us. He is not some ivory tower Savior. He's not some ivory tower mediator, Messiah. No, He entered our experience. He became like us in every way, yet without sin. So you see, that's why the Apostle can so easily say, in verse 16, therefore let us, which is what he says, let us then, let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let us therefore with confidence, not with arrogance, but with confidence, we can go boldly to Christ because he gets us. He understands you. He understands what makes you tick. He understands temptation. He understands experience. He understands life as a human being, this side of the fall. Jesus is not the unapproachable Messiah, but the exact opposite. He's the one we can go to just as we are, riddled with sin, broken weak run down run out jesus gets us he's the savior we want isn't that the savior you want i don't want a savior who doesn't understand what i'm going through i don't want a savior who doesn't get what we or doesn't experience what we go through jesus that's the whole point is that very savior held out for us here by the apostle whoever you are Whatever you've done, you can draw near to this Savior. He's the Savior we want. But the second thing the apostle has for us is not only that Jesus is the Savior we want, but he's also the Savior we need. He's the Savior we need. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. There we're told... That every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. That's their whole function. They're to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. They are to act on behalf of mankind, and they act on behalf of mankind in regard, in respect to the Lord. They offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So Jesus, the great high priest, verse 9 Being made perfect, he became the source of an eternal salvation. You see, Jesus is the Savior we need. In other words, he's the Savior who's not just like us, but he gives us something to do with our sins. Let me explain. When I lived in Scotland, I did my PhD on Samuel Rutherford. So the quote that I gave earlier is one that's near and dear to my heart. There are many more like it that are stored away, and uh, I've cherished those and those times and those memories greatly. But when we lived in Scotland, I had a good friend who would identify himself as agnostic. And he said, yeah, maybe there's a higher power, maybe there's a God somewhere, but we can't know. We can't know him for sure. And we would always engage in, in dialogue. He found me fascinating. I found him fascinating, and we enjoyed the time together. And at one point, I remember we were having a conversation about Christianity, and he said to me, he says, Guy, that's the problem with you Christians. You're always trying to make people feel guilty. That's the problem with Christianity. Christians always try to make people feel guilty. And I looked at him and I said, Colin, Christianity doesn't make anyone feel guilty. Christians don't make people feel guilty. You already feel guilty. Everyone feels guilt. The question is, or the thing is, Christianity gives you something to do with your guilt. Because the world has nothing else to offer. We all feel guilty. We're all eaten up with guilt and shame. And we're looking for something to take that away. Alcohol. Drugs. Relationships. Food. We're looking for success. We're looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for love in all the wrong and too many faces or however the song went, right? But we're looking for something to take away that guilt, to satisfy, to tide us over, and nothing does. The guilt remains. Christianity doesn't make anyone feel guilty. Christianity gives you the only thing that can deal with your guilt once and for all. That's Jesus. He's the high priest we need because he came and he offered himself as a sacrifice for sins, as the great high priest and the great sacrifice, offering himself once for all time so that all who had put their faith in Christ would have their guilt atoned for and their sins taken away. You know, the most important question in life is not, does God exist? The most important question in life is not, why am I here? The most important question in life is, what do I do with my guilt? Jesus is the Savior we need. He's the Savior we need. And that's why, no doubt, the apostle can say in verse 14, since then... Because we have such a great high priest who has already passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Where else are you going to go? Jesus is the one who takes away your guilt. Jesus is the savior of the world. Are you gonna to turn to alcohol? Are you gonna to turn to drugs? You're gonna to turn to relationships, you're gonna to turn to health or wealth or Success, reputation, you're going to turn to something in this life that cannot take away guilt. No, Jesus is it Let us hold fast our confession without wavering to the end. Jesus is the Savior we want. Jesus is the Savior we need. Thirdly, and finally, Jesus is the Savior we worship. He's the savior we serve. We we are devoted to with all of our lives. I think that's the whole point in what the apostles laying out for us here because the whole point of this passage is to show us Jesus and to show that he's greater than any before him. He's the goat. The greatest of all time. There's none like him. Don't look to Tom Brady. Don't look to LeBron James. Don't look to any of these guys as being the greatest of all time. No, it's not Michael Jordan. It's not LeBron James. It's not any of these guys. It's Jesus. He's the greatest. He's the greatest high priest of all time. He's the greatest everything, greatest human being, the greatest savior of the world. And the whole point is to highlight that, to showcase that reality. And so in verses 5 and 6, the apostle tells us that Jesus is not just priest. He's not just high priest as Aaron was, but he's also son. You see, Jesus is priest and son. That's why he's the greatest of all time. He's priest and son. Verse 5, he was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today, I have begotten you. Jesus is priest and And son. Secondly, he says Jesus is priest and king in verse 6. And then again in verse 10, he refers to this figure, Melchizedek. Now, if you know your Bibles, as I'm sure most of you, almost or maybe all of you will, you'll know that Melchizedek is a mysterious figure. He appears in Genesis 14 in the Old Testament and then disappears. And we never see from him or hear from him again. His name is taken in Psalm 110. And then obviously here again in the book of Hebrews on a number of occasions. But he appears out of nowhere. His lineage is not given. His mom and his dad are not presented to us. He disappears. We're not told if he has children. He comes out of nowhere and he goes into nowhere in a sense. He is, if you will, eternal. No beginning and no end. His name means king of righteousness. Melchizedek, quite literally. We're told he's priest, he's a priest of God, and so he is king, uh, king of Salem, which means king of peace, right? And he's king of righteousness, Melchizedek, king of righteousness, king of Salem, he's priest of God. Here is a figure who comes out of nowhere, goes, uh, disappears into nowhere in a sense, if you will. No beginning, no end. This mysterious figure to which Abraham pays tithes in Genesis chapter 14, who's the king of righteousness and the king of Salem and the priest of God. The man who's king and priest. Priest and king. Jesus is that kind of a figure. As we'll see, Jesus is an eternal priesthood. He's not like the Aaronic priesthood in the Old Testament that they very much could trace their lineage. We knew who Aaron's mama was. We knew who Aaron's daddy was. We knew who the Aaronic priests, high priest's parents were. They came from moms and dads. They came into the world in the usual way. They had weaknesses that had to themselves be atoned for. But Jesus was not that way. He's a priest not after the order of Aaron. He's a priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's priest and son, priest and king. He's a perfect high priest. Isn't that the whole point? You see, the comparison between him and Aaron. Aaron, we're told, had to still offer a sacrifice for his own sins. Look what the apostle says, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 5. He can deal gently The earthly high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Why? Because he himself is ignorant and wayward. Right? That's the whole point. The high priest can deal with people who are weak and filled with weakness. Why? Because he himself is filled with weakness. He himself is weak. He can deal with sinners. Why? Because he himself is a sinner. But this high priest, this great high priest, the greatest of all time, is himself not weak. He's not Sinful. He doesn't need to offer sacrifice for his own sins, but he can still identify with sinners because he became like us in every way sin accepted. He became like us and he experienced our life and he was tempted in every way as we are, feeling the full weight and even greater weight of temptation that we feel in our lives. Jesus is priest and son, he's priest and king, he's perfect priest and he's the priest forever. You see the ironic priesthood, the ironic priest, his priesthood would end when he died and someone would take his place. But this priest, his priesthood endures forever. And that's why he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, because Melchizedek has no beginning. There is no mama or daddy listed in the scriptures for Melchizedek. There's no, there's no progeny. There's no children that are listed either. He comes out of nowhere. There's no beginning, and he goes, if you will, into nowhere. There is no end. He is eternal in that sense, although not really, but he's meant to look eternal. And so this Melchizedek is a picture of the eternal priesthood of Jesus. What that means is that you and I have, as the apostle says in verse 9, an eternal salvation. An eternal salvation. We don't have a five-minute salvation. We don't have a five-month salvation. We don't have a 50-year salvation that lasts as long as the high priest is alive. Now you see, Jesus is a priest forever. and So that means you and I have a salvation that lasts forever. Which is why the apostle will go on to say that he ever lives. He ever lives to make intercession for us. It's been a hard day. It's been a hard week. It's been a hard year. Are you feeling weak and beat down? Are you feeling demoralized, fearful, faint-hearted, cold-blooded, Worn down, worn out. Where are you? Wherever you are, know this. That he ever lives to make intercession for you. He ever lives to make intercession for you. Because he died for you. And now he intercedes for you. Forevermore. Forevermore, you and I cannot outsin his intercession. We cannot outsin his intercession. Don't doesn't mean go try. Not advocating that tonight. What I'm saying is, that would raise other issues that we might have to deal with, but what I'm saying is, you and I have no reason to feel guilty or beat down in guilt and shame because of what we've done, what we've left undone, what we've said, what we've left unsaid, what we've thought, or what we've left unthought. We have a high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. We cannot out-sin his intercession. And that ought to lead us to worship. And that's why I say, Jesus is the Savior we worship. He's the Savior we want. He gets us. He has stood where we stand. He's experienced what we experience except for sin. He's been tempted as we are in every way, with the full scope and the full range. He's the Savior we need. He offered Himself once, for all time. And He's the Savior we worship because He ever lives to make intercession for the saints. Amen? Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we come in the name of Christ, grateful for all that You are to us in Christ. Father, we come confessing that we have fallen short of the glory of God. We have been selfish and prideful even as believers. We have been about ourselves. We have had our eyes fixed upon the world, on circumstances, on the things of this world, created things rather than on the Creator who is forever blessed. And so, Father, we come confessing that readily to you this evening. We ask that you'd remind us that in Christ our sins are forgiven, that Jesus really is the Savior that we want, and he really is the Savior that we need, and he really is the Savior that we worship. And so, Father, my prayer is that for every one of us tonight, this season of Advent might be a season that you remind us of these things again and again, and again, and that you would fill our minds and our hearts with a beholding of Christ's glory and beauty, and that you would drive us to worship anew and afresh. For Jesus, the Savior of the world, has come, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.